Welcome to episode 96 of the Neuro Experience Podcast. I'm your host, Louisa Nicola. I'm excited to introduce to you all Dr. Paul Saladino, a board-licensed physician and functional medicine practitioner. He's an advocate and one of the biggest fans of the carnivore diet, which you might even convert to after this episode. In this episode, you'll learn what the carnivore diet is, the nutritional difference between meat and plants, and how different types of meat affect your brain performance. I'm excited to talk to an intelligent doctor to find out the science behind why eating meat is so important, and I approach the conversation again from a mental perspective, and Dr. Saladino gives a compelling case as to why the carnivore diet is good for both your brain and your physical self. Let's get into it. Um, as a meat eater myself, I'm sure all of the viewers are going to be ecstatic with everything that you're going to be speaking about and all the information you're going to provide for us. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. So um, I want you to give a debrief um, about who you are, what you do, and um, also once you do that, I'd love you to tell us how do you start your morning. I'm a classically trained physician. I'm an MD. I went to the University of Arizona for medical school in Tucson where I trained with Andrew Weil and many of the founding people involved in integrative medicine. And after that, I went to residency at the University of Arizona where I studied psychiatry, where I did a psychiatry residency. And now I'm done with that. And I am also a certified functional medicine practitioner. I've finished the training through the Institute for Functional Medicine. So now I'm in private practice in San Diego and doing a combination of my own podcast, content creating, sharing lectures, doing stuff on YouTube and seeing clients privately. So that's what I do now. That's where I've come from. It's been a long journey. There's a lot to unpack there, but for the sake of brevity, that's kind of where I'm at right now. This morning was much like many of the mornings uh, in my life. I do tend to create a morning routine. I like to start the morning in a certain way. I will mention that even before I'm awake, I really try hard to make the room as dark as possible. I try to protect my circadian rhythms. I try Mm. to protect that with food, not eating too close to when I go to sleep. And also with temperature, I have a chili pad, which I love, and I try to protect the sort of melatonin production in the evening prior to going to sleep with red lights. So my morning routine actually probably begins the night before. When I get up, the first thing I like to do is go outside and get into the sunlight. I'm fortunate to live in San Diego now, a few blocks from the ocean. The mornings here are gorgeous. They're cool. And by the ocean, there's a marine layer sometimes or I get sun in the morning. So I'll try and get morning sunlight. I'll try to sort of reset my circadian rhythm with the morning sun. I'll do some grounding. I'll just touch the earth with bare feet, do a little bit of light movement, some deep breathing. I'll usually then drink some water. I try to get really good spring water with some electrolytes and I'll meditate. I usually meditate for about 10 minutes in the morning just to start the morning. And I'll also usually spend some time in front of my red light, which is a red and near infrared light. It's a juve. And Um, then if I am really having a good morning, I will go surfing. So I'll do some really deep grounding and jump in the ocean and get some surfing in before I start my work day, which usually consists of either seeing private clients or working on my podcast, which is called fundamental health or creating other content or researching for upcoming talks, et cetera. So that's my morning. 
Wow, that's so beautiful to hear. Anybody who has a combination of, you know, going outside, doing grounding and meditating is, I think in my eyes, is so beneficial and um, leading towards a more high performance lifestyle. I think that with neuroathletics, every single client that comes on board, we always get them to meditate every single morning, um, a combination of meditation and breath work and obviously lo- using a lot of red light as well. So I'm a huge fan of that. Um so psychiatry, that's really interesting and, and that's something that this is why I wanted to get you on here and as a mental performance podcast, um, myself and all my viewers were all so you know excited to hear more about how nutrition plays a part when it comes to you know, disorders such as anxiety, such as depression. You know, there's been a lot of evidence to suggest that there's so many things that we can be doing to either eliminate or decrease some of these um symptoms, you know, like that lead towards anxiety and depression. What can you tell us, um, uh, you know, what research have you done or what evidence is there to suggest that there is a link between the foods that we're eating and disorders such as anxiety and depression? This is such a good question. It really is the beginning of a thread that leads to a fundamental paradigm shift in the way that Western medicine needs to think about mental health. Most people, if they listen to the news or they read magazines or consume mainstream media, will still probably hear the notion that mental illness, whether it's depression or anxiety, or even more severe examples of mental illness, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, are due to chemical imbalances in the brain. What I don't like about this narrative and many of the narratives from mainstream Western medicine is that they're not accompanied with any suggestions about what could be causing these imbalances. It is true that in some illnesses, not always depression or anxiety, but perhaps in bipolar and schizophrenia, sometimes we can see imbalances in neurotransmitters in the brain. But generally with regard to depression, people are often told, oh, it's not enough serotonin. That's a gross oversimplification and it's just not borne out by the research. What we do see across the majority of psychiatric disease, however, is inflammation in the brain. And the way that looks is activation of a certain population of cells, which are brain-derived macrophages known as microglial cells. So, These cells have two different phenotypes, which are known specifically as M1 and M2 phenotypes, and when they become turned on or activated to respond to an insult, there's inflammation in the brain. That's really what inflammation is. Inflammation is a cytokine milieu, which reflects an attitude of the immune system. It reflects the immune system's mood at any one time, and so the immune system has a stormy mood in the brains of people with psychiatric disease. And this is something that is never talked about. It's really oversimplified to be a chemical imbalance. And then it's treated with medications that will temporarily ameliorate a chemical imbalance, but often carry many bad side effects and don't actually get to the root of the problem. But almost invariably, and I say almost because some mental illness is, I think some depression is related to stress in our lives, but very... A very large percentage of depression, anxiety, bipolar, even schizophrenia is related to inflammation in the brain, this mood of the immune system in the brain. And then the next question, which I'm sure your astute listeners will be asking is, okay, where is inflammation in the brain coming from? And that is the $64,000 question. And we ask that question throughout the body from a functional medicine perspective. We are always asking, where does inflammation come from and what is causing it? 
evolutionarily, we had good reasons to have inflammation at times in our body when we would get injured or be exposed to a pathogen or a parasite. Our body would turn on an inflammatory response to respond to those. But what appears to be happening now with so much chronic disease, even outside of the brain, autoimmune disease, things like this, and psychiatric disease, is inflammation is triggered chronically, but not in response to a pathogen all the time. It's very rarely in response to a pathogen. It's usually in response to other things in our environment. And understanding what those are is the job of physicians in the functional medicine space, physicians in the integrative medicine space who are trying to move the paradigm forward. I think that one of the biggest triggers of inflammation is food. Food is such a big lever, and that can cause inflammation in the body. And that is clearly translatable to the brain. I think a lot of this begins in the gut with the things we're eating and there can be toxins in the foods we're eating. There can be pesticides and it can just frankly be the actual food we're eating that can be incompatible with our bodies. And that can create inflammation in the gut that can change the mood of the immune system in the gut. And that immune system is intimately connected with the immune system throughout the whole body. The immune system travels throughout the body. There are nerves in the gut that are connected with the vein, the brain, specifically the vagus nerve. And the immune system in the gut and surrounding the gut can release cytokines, which can affect the immune system in the brain. They can send text messages and these messages throughout the body so that when there's inflammation in one part of the body, often you feel it throughout the body. People will probably not find this incredibly strange if they imagine or they remember that when they're sick, which is, again, an evolutionarily consistent reason to have inflammation, often we don't feel good and our mood is kind of crappy and we don't feel like doing much. That's the way that a lot of people with depression feel all of the time. And there's that's a real correlate that when you get inflammation related to an illness, a virus, a bacterial infection, a lot of people don't feel good. They don't feel depressed. They don't feel motivated. They don't want to do much. But That's inflammation in the body being translated into the brain and affecting your mood. So there are plenty of examples of this in our lives. And the discordance comes or the imbalance, the real trigger chronically probably occurs when we have inflammation being created in the human brain due to things that are happening in our body, specifically intake of foods that are really not compatible with our genetics And that is sort of the genesis, I believe, of most psychiatric disease. So what I have said in the past is that psychiatrists are really brain rheumatologists. If people have been to rheumatologists, they will know that rheumatologists are generally tasked with treating autoimmune disease. Rheumatologists will treat things like lupus and Sjogren's. They'll treat things like rheumatoid arthritis. They might even treat Hashimoto's thyroiditis, though that might also go to an endocrinologist. But... What I believe is that inflammation and autoimmunity are linked, they go hand in hand, and that what we have in psychiatric disease is inflammation, activation of the immune system in the brain, the immune system acting inappropriately in the brain, essentially causing autoimmunity. Psychiatrists are really tasked with being brain rheumatologists, but we're never thought of that way. We're just thought of as shrinks. We're thought of as people who just give medications and do therapy. We're never taught to think about inflammation in the brain and how to ameliorate it. But I think that food is an incredibly big link here and understanding which foods can be triggering are some of the most important investigations we can do. 
So, okay, let's just, let's break it down a little bit because this is so interesting. And I actually did a a post about this probably about a year ago now that um, there's brain inflammation and sometimes it can come out in the form of anger, anxiety, you know, being upset and and I described it as, you know, sometimes when you work out so much, you get inflammation in your in your body because of the all the workout that you did. And I, I did some research to suggest that, you know, bad foods such as let's look at sugar can cause brain inflammation. But also I looked at it from a mental thought perspective in thinking that negative thoughts can also live, link, uh, be linked to brain inflammation. Is this something that you know of or can expand on? The sugar piece or the negative thoughts? <laughs> Let, let's, let's look at the negative thoughts first. Well, we know that cortisol, stress can create problems in the human body. And so I think this is really the, the dovetailing, the intertwining of mind and body. And I think this is totally true, that the way that we think will manifest into physical reality. And if we are in a negative thought pattern, we could create more cortisol. We know that people with higher levels of cortisol have more stress. I mean, that's an oversimplification of the actual stress response. But if we lead stressful lives, if we don't have a meditation practice, and again, this probably sounds woo-woo, but it's basic and it's cliche because it's true. If we don't have these abilities, if we're not good at dealing with stress then absolutely, we can think our way into imbalance, hormonal imbalance in the human body. And that, in a a very basic way, is elevated cortisol. Cortisol can lead to leakiness of the gut. And this, I think, is where thoughts, emotions, stress can connect with our physical body and can connect with triggering the immune system. It's a hypothesis. Cortisol directly can probably affect us negatively. Generally, we think of cortisol as anti-inflammatory or, you know, it it can have both of those mechanisms. But strictly speaking, I think that most of the mechanism around thoughts or much of the mechanism around thoughts triggering inflammation probably intersects in the gut. It, it, It meets up with the immune system at the crossroads of the GI tract and the fact that when When we're stressed, when our cortisol levels are chronically elevated, which can happen for a variety of reasons, we don't maintain the epithelial barrier of the gut as robustly as we should. And that can lead to increased transmission of antigens, increased passage of antigens across the gut lining, triggering the immune system, which again resides in the the layer of the um, gut, which is just adjacent to the epithelium on the body side known as the lamina propria. So I think that certainly stressful thoughts, negative thoughts can lead to inflammation probably through that mechanism. Um, but it's, it, they're certainly not a good thing. And man, the mind is so powerful. We're able to control it. It goes both ways. That really um, fascinates me because when we look at brain inflammation and we look at all the things that we can be doing to optimize our brain, we don't look at you know, the thoughts that we're having, we often turn to, you know, are we having enough sleep? Are we drinking alcohol? Are we consuming sugar? And I always love to look at it from more of a therapeutic perspective and thinking, you know, how much sleep are you getting? What's your thought patterns like? How much, you know, good breathing are you doing? How much hydrating are you doing? I think they're all um, interrelated. And then I think, um, I think 
this is my perspective. I think that nutrition is secondary to the thoughts that we have. And I'm sure that you can expand on that, which brings me to my next question. And that's, um, you know, why you're so big on the carnivore diet. And I'd love to know how this correlates to enhanced brain performance. And if you know any studies that you've done when it comes to meat eating and how that can be more beneficial for you than eating plants, for example. Yeah. The carnivore diet is incredibly fascinating to me. So in case your listeners are not familiar with what a carnivore diet is, it's kind of what it sounds like. It's eating like a lion or a tiger or a wolf or a human, I believe. I believe that our evolutionary connection is our evolutionary sort of history suggests that we are meant to eat animals as the majority of our foods. So on a carnivore diet, there are no plants consumed, or at least plants are de-emphasized and animal foods are emphasized. And there are so many anecdotes. We are in the thousands, probably tens of thousands now, anecdotes of people who have had psychiatric, inflammatory, autoimmune benefit from cutting plants out of their diet. And so the majority of the research that has been done with a carnivore diet is at the case, the case study level. But there are published case reports of people having resolution of certain cancers, resolution of inflammatory bowel disease, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease with carnivorous diets, and also resolution of recalcitrant autoimmune disease, rheumatoid arthritis, Sjogren's, lupus, psoriasis, and profoundly impactful severe psychiatric disease that was not responding to any other therapy. And this brings up this at first sounds what at first sounds like a crazy question or a crazy idea. Wait a minute. Why would not eating plants do all of those things? Aren't plants meant to be the most valuable part of a human diet? And my fascination over the last year has become the idea that perhaps that's not the case. And when you really start to break this down, you have to kind of break it down in stages and look at it from the beginning. If we just back up and we think about plant and animal coevolution, what we quickly realize is that plants don't want to get eaten. When I say that, people often say, well, animals don't want to get eaten either. That's a weak argument. To which I reply, yeah, plants don't want to get eaten and they're rooted in the earth. They can't move. And this is not conjecture or opinion. This is science and botany and plant biochemistry. But plants have developed myriad chemical defense mechanisms. We look at plants that have spikes on them like roses or cacti. And we say, oh, that plant is really not trying to get eaten because it's got a physical spike. But there are lots of chemical spikes in plants that we can't see and that we're never told about. And I think that at a really profound and ideologically challenging level, the carnivore diet improving the lives of tens of thousands of people with diseases that are not responding to other interventions begins to suggest that perhaps these plant toxins are not as benign as we've been told they are. Or it just raises the idea that there are these plant toxins and they've generally been ignored in our diets. But if you really look at it from the perspective of nutrient bioavailability and nutrient presence, animal foods have all of the nutrients that humans need to function optimally in the most bioavailable forms. So what I'm saying is that if we eat animals nose to tail, which is the way that I think we should be eating animals, eating the whole animal as a lion would, as our ancestors would have if they were hunting, what you find out looking at 
published, widely accepted nutritional science is that you can get everything you need to function optimally as a human. There are no nutrients missing from animals. And the nutrients in animals are incredibly bioavailable, meaning that we absorb them to a much greater degree and are easily able to use them in our bodies to a much greater degree than we can with plants. But the reverse is not true of plants. Plant nutrients are not very bioavailable. And if we look at plants, there are many nutrients that are missing in plants that are not very bioavailable in plants, that are frankly not even present in plants, specifically things like carnitine, carnosine, taurine, B12, the list goes on and on, that we can't get from plants. And we shouldn't be surprised because plants are really from a different operating system than humans. They're just made differently. An animal like a cow or a deer looks a lot more like a human in terms of its biochemistry than a plant does. So our operating systems make a lot more sense when they go together. So I am so excited about a carnivore diet for people because It can provide all of the things we need to function optimally as humans without any of the potential toxins or immunologic triggers in plants. And there are many rabbit holes we could go down, but that's the basic gist of it. So I'm guessing a lot of people will say to you, okay, great, but there's probably also a lot of chemicals and hormones that are found in in meat because like, I mean, unless you're talking about eating grass-fed organic meat only... You know, it'd probably be hard for a lot of people. And I, I'm guessing you'd have a lot of people that would say to you, well, that's great, Paul, but what about for somebody who, you know, what about, is it chicken? Is it beef? Is it lamb? Are we talking about all animal products? And how do we bypass the hormones that are infecting all of the, all of the products that we're eating right now? So I think that there are a couple of questions there to unpack. I do think that if we are going to eat animals, we should vote with our dollars and we should understand that grass-fed pastured animals are a much better choice. And if people find that they believe they can't afford grass-fed animals, I would challenge them to look further for sources of those animals. They're actually pretty darn affordable and not that rare to get anymore. You can get grass-fed ground beef for $4 a pound. And the amount of nutrients and nutrition that you're going to get from that pound of ground beef is greater than any $4 you could possibly spend on plant foods. So I I do challenge the notion that eating an animal-based diet is not affordable or not accessible to people. And I think that we can do that in a very clean way and in a way that uh, will actually increase the amount of pasturing of animals and grass feeding of animals on the planet. And as we know, I've done uh, multiple podcasts about this and I had Peter Ballerstedt on my podcast where we talked specifically about the environmental impacts of eating animals. When animals are raised on pasture, specifically what I'm talking about here are ruminant animals, lamb, beef, or deer if it's farmed. And they're farmed uh, when, they, when they're grown on grass and they're not feedlot animals, they're actually carbon negative. So there are so many misconceptions floating around and about environmental impacts of animals. When we really look at the data, what we find is that ruminant animals enrich the ability of the soil to fix carbon and nitrogen with their manure. So they actually increase the soil carbon carrying capacity, decreasing the amount of carbon in the environment. So grass feeding, grazing of animals is a net negative for the carbon in the environment. So that's a really good thing. Even animals that are grain-fed spend 85% of their lives on pasture. And I don't think anyone is advocating for more grain-feeding of animals. There's a lot of confusion here. If we want to feed more people with grass-fed animals, we need to make those animals more available. 
And perhaps the U.S. government should consider changing its subsidy from junk food of grains and sugar and tobacco to uh, grass-fed animals. But regardless, even grain-fed animals, I think that the dangers are overblown. And if somebody could only choose between grain-fed animals and plants, I would still select a grain-fed animal. I think that the concerns about hormones are overblown. I'm not advocating for grain-fed animals, but if you look at the hormones that are fed to these animals, they're generally out of the animal before. You don't find them in the meat. I'm not saying it's a great thing, but I don't think that's really a valid argument. I would, however, be very clear about the fact that I think grass-feeding is the way to do it. From from birth to, to harvest of these animals, we should be grass-feeding these animals, and people should make that a priority, and they should use their dollars to vote there, yeah. Mm. And But in situations where people can't get that, I, I still think that animals are highly superior sources of nutrients that are bioavailable uh, without any of the toxins found in plants. So is your diet predominantly meat in, including eggs as well? Are we talking eggs like the whole egg, or are you talking just the yolk? So in my diet, um, and there are different ways to construct an animal-based diet. You had asked about this earlier. People do eat chicken, they eat fish, they eat ruminant animals, they eat monogastric animals like pigs. And it, it depends on what people are looking for and what they're able to source in terms of quality. There's variable quality in animals, just like there's variable quality in plant foods. And I don't recommend people eat processed animal foods on a diet like this either. It's a whole foods animal-based diet. Personally, the majority of my diet is ruminant animals, and I eat them nose to tail, meaning that actually the way that I eat animals is different than what people might expect for a carnivore diet. I eat animals prioritizing organs and fat, like I think our ancestors would have. I don't actually don't prioritize the muscle meat. I eat a pretty pretty moderate amount of muscle meat per day. I'm 170 pounds, 5'10", and I'll eat about a pound of muscle meat per day. In addition to that pound of muscle meat, I'll eat a few ounces of liver, a few ounces of kidney, a few ounces of other organs if I have them available, and quite a bit of animal fat in the form of trimmings or suet. I also do eat egg yolks. I'm not a big fan of the whites personally, but if people are not sensitive to the whites, they can eat them. I prefer the yolks just because I'm not looking to get more protein in my diet. I get plenty of protein from organ meat and muscle meat, but I do try and prioritize well-sourced animal fat that is grass-fed, organic animal fat, which I believe is a source of fat-soluble nutrients like vitamin K2, which we know is hugely important, and other fat-soluble nutrients, omega-3 fatty acids, DHA, EPA, DPA, things like this. A lot of times when people hear of carnivore diets, they just think of eating meat and eating five pounds of ribeye a day. That's not how I think we should be constructing this diet. People might be a little bit grossed out by the thought of organs. And again, there are different ways to construct it that are more and less doable for people. And I think, but I think the goal is understanding where the most bioavailable nutrients are coming from. And if plant foods could be serving as an immunologic trigger, which I believe they often are. So we have a lot of athletes that listen to this, um, you know, high-performing athletes who are probably um, consuming a, a high-calorific, you know, diet because they're burning so much during the day. If they were to, you know, take on this advice and switch from what they're eating now, which I can only suggest is predominantly carbohydrates, and switch to a carnivore diet, how, what would be the best, you know, form to move into this? Would it just be go cold turkey on everything and go straight to what you've just described or is it a process that your body has to get used to well by definition a carnivorous diet 
that is relatively moderate in protein and high in fat is going to be a ketogenic diet. We know that there's a keto adaptation period. I recently interviewed Dom D'Agostino on my podcast. We talked about this at length, and I've looked at much of this literature. If you look at the literature from Stephen Finney and Jeff Folick, specifically the FASTER study, F-A-S-T-E-R, what we see is that when athletes are keto adapted, that is when endurance athletes are tested for glycogen storage and glycogen replenishment after a period of 8 to 12 weeks of keto adaptation, what they find is that keto-adapted athletes have the same rates of glycogen storage and repletion as carbohydrate-adapted athletes. And as a benefit, keto-adapted athletes oxidize fat at a much greater rate. I think it's two and a half times higher, so they're able to access that stored fat in a much greater way. So, applications of ketogenic diets in general, I'll use the umbrella term here if we're talking about athletes, are specific to individual athlete sports. But generally speaking, the majority of the research and anecdotal evidence would suggest that ketogenic diets or being fat adapted or ketogenic keto adapted in our metabolism is quite beneficial for endurance exercise. In 2018, there were a group of rowers that broke the record rowing across the Atlantic Ocean from the Canary Islands to somewhere in the Bahamas. And they broke the record by four days and they were, they were in ketosis the whole time. They were keto adapted athletes. And there are many, many examples of keto adapted athletes and endurance sports just absolutely crushing it. For sprint athletes, I think that the, the jury is still out. For strength athletes, I think the jury is still out, but it's not entirely clear. But there are many ways to sort of massage this and create nuances. On an, on an athlete-to-athlete basis, we would have to look at what the athlete is looking for in terms of performance. But to answer your question, anyone that goes from a carbohydrate-based diet to a fat-based diet or a ketogenic diet, I'm meaning those to be synonyms, is going to have to go through a period of adaptation. I think that you will get to a metabolically advantaged state once you are adapted, but there's going to be a period of adaptation. So, And that brings up all of the questions around keto flu and how to do that, which is a whole other rabbit hole we can go down. But I think that if people are going to make the transition, they need to know that it's not always as simple as just changing. And the body will do it, but we can do that more or less smoothly and have specific goals based on the athlete's sport. Mm. This is so exciting. Everything you've just outlined is really brand new to me. Um, I've never really gone into depth with understanding the effects mentally and physiologically um, on a, on my body or on anybody um, that can go on this carnivore diet. It's all new to me. And I often hear so many times and read so much about how a plant-based diet or even I've gone into um, vegans and, and how they benefit from this. And obviously there's two sides to every story. So I'm so excited to um, look further into this. And I want to know just as we wrap up this amazing, um, amazing podcast, what is there any advice that you could give to anybody like what would be your one piece of advice that you could give to somebody who's might be struggling or suffering with um any type of mental disorder it might be anger it might be anxiety it might be depression what's your one piece of advice that you could give them if people are struggling with mental illness depression anxiety etc i would urge them to think about their lifestyle and urge them to think about what they're eating from a very simple perspective. I don't think that everyone needs to try a carnivore diet. Personally, professionally, 
I believe that a whole foods animal-based diet is going to be the best intervention. But what I generally tell people is do something intentionally. Make an intentional choice with regard to your diet because diet is the biggest lever. In my professional experience, the best improvements I've seen have been in people cutting out plants or going to a ketogenic diet for psychiatric disease. But if someone really wants to try a vegan diet, that's fine. I don't think that that's the best thing for them, short-term or long-term. But I think the thing to remember is that diet is the greatest lever. Diet is the one of the biggest influences on our physical, mental, emotional, physiologic health around the immune system. And that Adjusting that, moving that in an intentional way is data, and that is valuable data. That is a valuable intervention. So being able to do that from an intentional perspective, I think, is the first step. Whatever people want to choose, if they want more information about the carnivore diet, they can look at my stuff, which we'll talk about where to find me. But do something and see how you feel. And if that thing doesn't help you, then do something else. But I really believe that no one should have psychiatric disease. That that psychiatric disease, I believe that Almost all chronic inflammatory autoimmune disease is curable. It's just that we're not asking the right questions and we're not looking to make the right interventions. And so if people are not finding success with what they're doing, I think they should make intentional choices around their diet and get a sense of how that might be affecting their bodies or creating imbalance and inflammation. Wow. I love that. That was such a bold statement. Um, Paul, thank you so much for all of the information that you've provided us. I'm so excited to actually research more into it. So for those of us, and I'm I'm sure there's going to be a lot who want to find out more about you and more about what you do, where can we find out this information? So the best place to find me is paulsaladinomd.com. I've got links there to my podcast, which is Fundamental Health. I've got links there to my social media sites, which are YouTube. I have a channel. People can just search in YouTube and they'll find my YouTube channel. I have Instagram, Paul Saladino MD, Twitter, MD Saladino, and uh, a Patreon under Paul Saladino MD. So those are the best sources. I would encourage people to check out my podcast, some of the other podcasts I've been on that are uh, a little more in depth. I love that this is short because it's a quick soundbite for people, but there's a lot to go into here and so many things to unpack. So lots and lots of things for people to explore in those positions. And I also see patients, clients personally, privately. So if people would like to work with me, they can find that information through the website. 